It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining Cut to the Chase. I have a guest today by the name of Insha Rahman. Insha, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Laura. I really appreciate that you're here. So Insha is a vice president of advocacy and partnerships at the Vera Institute of Justice. So if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard us talk about the bail reform laws here in New York City, both the real world impact and the political impact. There's a lot of jargon out there. There's a lot of passion out there on all sides. So I thought it would be helpful, Insha, for you to come and kind of demystify this. If I'm correct, in your position at the Vera Institute, helps incubate new work in areas of bail reform, prosecutorial reform, decarceration, bail, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You worked as a public defender in the Bronx. I did. Now you're doing this. If you can... Just give us your sense of these, specifically in New York, what the bail reform laws do and the impact that they're having. Sure. So the reason bail reform was necessary in New York, and already I'm giving away my <laughs> my perspective on this. But Which the is reason, why I wanted you here. Yeah, but the reason they were necessary is because before bail reform, we had thousands and thousands of New Yorkers every single night sleeping in a jail cell, not because they were actually a threat to public safety or not because there was any real reason to keep them incarcerated other than they couldn't afford the price of their freedom. Mm. They couldn't afford $500 bail, $1,000 bail, let alone the average bail on a felony case in New York, which is upwards of $5,000. And so what bail reform did when it was passed in 2019 and went into effect in 2020 was to eliminate the role of money for the vast majority of nonviolent misdemeanor offenses Mm -hmm. and some felony offenses. And the idea was in cases where we don't have a concern about public safety based on the nature of the charge, we can say this person should be released, don't have to pay any money to do so, and that we have other options like pretrial services and monitoring and supervision when somebody's out in the community to make sure they come back to court. And for the most serious offenses, the ones that keep us up at night because we're worried about them, the serious assaults, robberies, gun charges, certainly homicides and rapes, the bail law stayed the same. Nothing really changed. The only thing that judges were required to do differently in those cases is at least consider what somebody can afford when setting bail. Mm -hmm. Therefore, to make a more thoughtful decision about should this person be released or stay in jail. So what was the impact of that? The law went into effect in 2020. And what we saw immediately was that the jail population statewide dropped because so many people were in jail on misdemeanor, nonviolent, low level charges. And so the jail population literally went down by almost 40 percent overnight. I remember that. Pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable, right? And what we also saw is there is no negative impact on public safety. There has been no credible study in the almost three years now that bail reform has been in effect showing that having far fewer people behind bars actually caused the uptick. And it's a real uptick in shootings or homicides or other kinds of crimes that people are worried about 
Certainly that is happening, but bail reform wasn't the driver. See, that's an interesting thing to parse out. And I would say I think there's a lot of common ground out there that it's not fair. I think people look at Khalid Browder, Mm -hmm. who was accused of stealing a backpack. He was in Rikers for three years because he couldn't afford $3,000 in bail. And then when he got out, he ended up killing himself. Yep. He was just a a kid. kid. And so I think anyone, you know, who's human, who's a human being would say, this is not allowed. If he was a kid, his middle class, upper class, whatever, his parents had 3,000 bucks, they would spring him Mm -hmm. and then deal with whether he stole it or not. Yep. That couldn't happen for this young man, for this boy. Yep. However, I think where most, where public opinion diverges from what you said is that it hasn't had an impact on public safety. And I know, you know, having been in government and covered government as a reporter, you can slice and dice crime statistics however you want. It's like the Bible. They can tell any story, give you any lesson that you want to get from it, depending on how you parse it out. So how is it? Are people just wrong? Is it other reasons why crime's going up? Help us understand that. So there's a very real concern about crime and safety among New Yorkers. We saw that right after bail reform went into effect and the fear mongering and the headlines in the New York Post and the Daily News and Newsday and every newspaper across the state took that one or two high profile cases where somebody was released after bail reform went into effect and went on to do something terrible while they were out. What you didn't hear on the front pages of the news was the thousands of New Yorkers who were released from jail because of bail reform, went home to their families, stayed in their jobs, were law-abiding, went back to court, and nothing happened because it's not front-page news. So, Mm. you know, what we saw literally within weeks of bail reform going into effect, before bail reform happened, the vast majority of New Yorkers supported it, close to 60%, because Khalif Browder was the story that they had in mind, this 16-year-old who, you know, killed himself because of the trauma of being in jail for three years, wrongfully accused of a crime. And then after bail reform went into effect, it was Tiffany Roberts who, you know, went out and repeatedly assaulted women on the street, clearly had a severe mental illness. Gerard Woodbury, who kept committing the same Uh, Mm -hmm. bank robbery again Mm -hmm. and again. Mm -hmm. Those were the stories Mm -hmm. that people associated with bail reform, Mm -hmm. right? And it was just a handful. We actually can't name that many of them, but the same ones get repeated. Mm -hmm. And that fueled a perception that bail reform is compromising public safety and suddenly New Yorkers don't feel safe. And literally within months of 2020, we saw support for bail reform plummet among New Yorkers to around 30%, literally it cut in wow. half, yeah. just as a result of media coverage. Yeah. So people are not necessarily wrong in their need to be safe. Everybody deserves to be safe. And so if New Yorkers aren't feeling safe, perception is reality. It's actually something Mayor Adams on the campaign trail plugged into really effectively to mm-hmm. say, you have concerns about safety mm-hmm. and that's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you put me in office, I will address it. Here's the second part of that equation, though, is what New Yorkers want are real solutions that make us safe. And the fear-mongering... That is, everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. And the fear-mongering around bail reform, the problem with it is you can roll back bail reform. It's not going to address the concerns we have about an increase in shootings or robberies or homicides because it's actually not the driver. So what I say often is, you blame the wrong causes, you miss the right solutions, and Hmm. that's what's happening with the fear-mongering around bail reform. 
So I imagine you go to a cocktail party and you tell people what you do and mm-hmm. they're going to want to talk to you and uh-huh. they're going to want to argue with you and they're going to want to hear sure what you thing. have to say. So it's a tough position to be in, but I think you have a very nice way of explaining it. Do you get frustrated or do you feel like you have this incoming all the time about mm-hmm. it? and having to defend it. Is that difficult for you? Oh, what an interesting question. In all of my time talking about bail and public safety, that's not one I get. But no, because I don't find it frustrating that people are concerned about public safety. Mm. It makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And we should be talking about it, not talking about it, which is frankly what many Democrats did on the campaign trail. We saw here in New York that that hurt those candidates because You're not recognizing what your constituents want, which is for you to acknowledge their fears around crime and safety, to say we all deserve to be safe, and to also say, I have solutions that will actually drive safety. And most New Yorkers prefer a prevention approach of preventing crime before it happens, not just reacting after. Right. But they feel frustrated with the status quo because politicians talk a lot about this, and yet we're not seeing real solutions. I mean, you look at where New Yorkers are on this current administration in New York City and whether or not they feel like we are safer in a year after Mayor Adams' election. And most New Yorkers will say, no, I don't see any real difference on the subway or I don't see any real difference out on the street. And it's because we haven't tapped into the right solution. So until we start to do that and actually feel like there's opportunity to do so now as we are sitting here post-election and looking to see, well, you know, all the crime Fear-mongering around the country didn't really seem to take hold, but it did in it New York. It did in New York. Why? Well, it, it's that's my the opinion. really interesting cocktail party conversation, at least to me. Which uh, maybe right. nobody else thinks so. No, but I, I think do. it's fascinating. And if I were having holding my Chardonnay at the cocktail mm-hmm. party with you, I would say, I think there are a couple of tweaks that could be done to bail reform that would make it safer and easier. One is allowing judges to use dangerousness. And the shortening of the discovery time and all of the information that has to go out about victims to the defense might scare people from actually bringing charges that should be brought. Those two things, the two Mm -hmm. D's, (laughs) discovery and dangerousness. What do you think about my theory? So if we were having on dangerousness, if we were having the policy conversation we were having back in 2019, where we had wind at our backs, where there was support for reform, in my view and in my organization's view, having a narrowly tailored, careful dangerousness standard only on the most serious cases where judges have to do a fact finding to say, could this person be safely released, free trial or not? I think that that is sound public policy. We're not having this conversation about dangerousness as a meaningful, honest debate around policy. It's really one of politics. And if you look at the law itself, now that we're three years into implementation, We did, in fact, leave bail the same for the most serious cases where danger is a consideration. It's on all violent felony offenses, some domestic violence offenses, other kinds of misdemeanor sex offenses that we have concerns about. And New Jersey, our neighbor, you know, across the river, Mm -hmm. did bail reform six years ago. They did, in fact, put in a dangerousness standard. And if you look at the outcomes in New Jersey, about 14% of people get rearrested for a felony offense during the pretrial period. About 88% of people come back to court. You look at New York statistics almost three years in, 13% of people get rearrested for a felony offense while released, and about 85% of people come back to court. It's apples hmm. and apples in terms of the outcomes, even though it's apples and oranges in terms of the bail law and how it's written. But 
I actually disagree with you based on the data we Mm -hmm. see so far Hmm. that adding a specific dangerousness standard at this moment would actually have better safety outcomes. But as a matter of policy, I don't disagree with you. The other thing I would suggest we do is take out money bail entirely and actually have a system where people are out or they are in and money plays no role in the most serious offenses because, again, it just privileges the wealthy Mm -hmm. and harms the poor. Mm -hmm. But we're not having an honest debate right now uh, around policy. We're having a political debate, and I don't think it's worth touching that piece of the bail statute. What I will say we need to do that New York failed to do and New Jersey got just right, mm-hmm. was really take the time to implement bail reform. We rushed to put it into mm-hmm. effect. We spent zero dollars behind it. We asked mm-hmm. counties to come up with the money to do pretrial services and train judges and support prosecutors and additional discovery requirements, all the things that are right as a matter of policy, yet we failed on implementation. And so that's actually the big change that I would suggest we push for because that will help with You know, those outlier cases where somebody does go out and do something terrible pretrial, if they are under greater supervision and support with pretrial services, that actually helps. And likewise with discovery. Yeah. You know, we passed a discovery law that actually just levels the playing field. And I say this as a former public defender. So again, I'm telling you my perspective and my bias, if you will. But other places have done the same kind of discovery reform we did, but put real money into implementation spent state dollars actually building out a discovery database Mm. and electronic records so that individual prosecutors' offices aren't drowning. And again, that's a fix. We can fix it. It's not too late to fix the problems with implementation, but that's really where I think the energy needs to be. Otherwise, we're going to have the same conversation a year from now if we haven't really gotten past the scare tactics and the fear-mongering and gotten to real solutions. I agree with you that it was rushed is huge changes and it Mm -hmm. takes time and you have to be really thoughtful. And I know this is a cliche word, but intentional about how you roll it out. Talking about politics, seeing as I am a former politician myself, I can't help but see things politically. It's hard to politically defend and it's easy to attack. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who lost her race in the midterms was told by a progressive lawmaker, well, you just didn't explain it well enough. You didn't explain it to people. And my friend, who was the candidate, said, why would I defend this? I don't believe in it. Plus, if you're explaining it... You're already on the back foot. You're on the back foot. Mm -hmm. You're you're already losing. Why am I going to put myself in a position to defend something that my constituents don't like? Mm -hmm. Why is that my job? Mm -hmm. There's that. So let me offer a counterpoint to New York, which is Illinois. So Illinois passed just as comprehensive bail reform as Mm -hmm. New York back in 2021. They took two years to put it into effect. It's going to go into effect January of this coming year. And on the campaign trail, we saw all of the same dynamics as in New York. We saw a ton of GOP money going into attacking Democratic candidates and incumbents on the campaign trail for championing bail reform. We saw public support around that fear-mongering plummet for bail reform. But what we saw differently was every single Democratic legislator who supported bail reform when they passed it went out on the campaign trail and explained why did we actually need bail reform, what's wrong with the status quo before bail reform, and we do need to have real solutions for safety, in particular gun violence and an increase in violent crime. 
And here are the solutions that we are championing if you vote for us again. Mm -hmm. And so they just owned the issue. They didn't run away from it or soft pedal or start to sound sort of indistinguishable from Republicans. And you know what? Across the board from Governor Pritzker to the state legislators who supported bail reform in Illinois, they all won re-election. That's not the story you see in New York. No, it's the opposite. I can't think of really a single Democratic incumbent who went out and said, hey, here's why we needed bail reform. You don't have to explain the specifics of the law or whatever. But I think one of the big takeaways is if you don't support something anymore and you did before, you have statements that show you sort of Mm flip-flopped or kind of, you know, mm-hmm. backtracked on your position, you actually lose voter confidence and looking like you know how to govern. Well, I agree with you on that because I think not every voter wants, knows they're not going to agree with you on every single thing. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're consistent, that goes a lot towards building trust. Yep. I mean, I'm probably not going to be your favorite politician. You might like me as a person, but politically, I, I came out very mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. I had problems with it. I yep. was concerned. So I, I've been consistent on the other way. However, you know, I understood the importance of it. And, you know, I was very much in favor of raising the age. I don't Mm -hmm. think you should have children in with adult population. I mean, there are certain reforms that needed to happen, but it just, I don't know, it just feels so toxic, I think, here. But you, you know, you bring up something really important, emphasizing public safety Mm -hmm. and what it is, what your actual plan is to do to keep people safe. Yep. That's the key right there. And sometimes I found some Democrats sort of dismissed it. Oh, you're just being manipulated by the New York Post. Yep. Oh, the data says something else. It's like, well, you're not talking to how I feel. Yeah. Reassure That's exactly me. Right. That's exactly right. So I want to offer you two data points. We did a whole lot of polling over the last year mm. to understand what voters and constituents want around crime and public safety. And we tried our best to be neutral in our polling to ask people, how do you feel about this issue? Recognizing public safety matters. It is a kitchen table issue in every election. It might not be the top issue. It certainly took, you know, second fiddle to abortion and democracy in this past midterm cycle. And the economy. And the economy, but it definitely is an important issue. And it's an especially important issue to black voters. Across our surveys, we Mm. saw that for black women and black men, crime and public safety were as important or trailed right behind the economy and inflation as a top voting issue. Mm. Is this in New York City or in the state? This is in New York State, and then we also did a national Mm. exit survey Mm -hmm. of voters and what they took to the ballot box around crime and safety. So let me offer you two quick data points. So the New York survey we did was at the beginning of April 2022, and put that back in time, you know what just happened. We Mm -hmm. just wrapped up the budget Mm -hmm. in the state legislature, And there was lots of talk about bail reform. And Kathy Hochul had put out her 10-point plan to roll Mm -hmm. back bail reform. That was was the conversation. So right on the heels of that, we surveyed New Yorkers, and they still, by a plurality, favored, let's prevent crime by investing in jobs, housing, treatment, services, as opposed to getting tough on crime. And that's after hearing a lot of talk about bail reform and a lot of fear-mongering around the issue. And what they said is, I've heard a lot about crime, but I actually don't know that much about this bail law. And so there's a real opportunity to educate there. And to your friend's point, I don't want to be on the back foot, but if you own the issue and you own it early and you talk about it with, you know, a clear perspective and here's what the data tells us. But if you don't feel safe, we've got to have real solutions for your safety. But rolling back bail reform isn't going to deliver that. So that's point one from the New York data. And then we did a similar 
test in our national exit survey data. And we found across the country, same thing, 53% of voters favor a prevention approach over just getting tough on crime or reacting to crime after it happens. And then you pull out Democrats, it's actually 76% favor prevention approach among black voters, 64%. So we're actually seeing something from the data about what people want. We just need to message to it. And that's really the opportunity that all of us have, whether you're Democrat, Republican, but if you care about both safety and justice and believe we can have both, and I firmly believe we can have both, Mm -hmm. this really charts a path forward for how we do something different from what we just saw in the midterms. Yeah. So you were speaking earlier about increase in certain crimes. Mm -hmm. And I hear what you say about how it's not with bail reform. What do you think the causes are? I mean, I think in my own personal opinion, I haven't pulled it. I'm not an expert. I just know what I see. Serious mental health issues. Obviously, COVID Mm -hmm. made everyone kind of nuts and really upset the way routines and the way people do things. I'm concerned about young people in those three years, what's gone on in their brains and with their education and their attention span. I mean, it's a little frightening right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to know what your opinion is. Why is it that we're seeing these these crimes go up? A lot of strange, random crimes. Yeah, yeah. And even if you haven't pulled it or studied it, Laura, you absolutely hit the nail on the head about what is driving the increase in crime. And look, there's no one factor. Never. Criminologists have studied this for time immemorial and have yet to sort of put their finger on this is the one driver of an increase in crime or the one driver that has resulted in less crime. And we are coming off of two decades of a drop in crime year after year in this country and here in New York as well. So that's, I just want to, before you go on, I want to underscore what you said. Criminologists, there's never one reason. Yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind. I think so, too, because it also means we need many solutions. There isn't just one. Right. And so the harping on bail reform, it's again, it goes back to why we're actually blaming the wrong cause. And that means we're missing the right solutions. Mm. But here's what we do know is crime went up everywhere. And in fact, in the places where it went up the most is in Republican and conservative led jurisdictions that actually don't really fund the social safety net. New York does better at that than many other places in this country. And while crime absolutely went up in certain measures in New York, it went up less than in other parts of the country, including Texas, Oklahoma, a number of other places. I think it's important to have that national perspective because we as New Yorkers, myself included, we start to get myopic and we only focus Mm -hmm. on ourselves Mm -hmm. without looking to see what are the trends, what can we learn from elsewhere, or what helps to put in perspective what we're seeing here in New York. And what we know about preventing crime is protective factors like strong relationships and family and community supports, investment in quality education and workforce development and jobs, and then access to good quality treatment for mental health, medical care, substance use disorders. Those are all of the things that actually help to keep people safe and Mm -hmm. healthy and help communities overall thrive. Those were all the things that were impacted by the pandemic. Mm. All of us experienced our kids having to stay home from school. We know what that did mm-hmm. to our kids and their learning and mm-hmm. their, you know, joy about school and all of those socializing things. Yeah. And, and then way too much time on electronics and hunched exactly. over in bed. It's just dreadful. Exactly. And so if you can imagine that sort of multiplied by a million when it comes to the things that actually keep families together and especially for young people help to distract them from the things that drive crime and invest in the things that keep them safe, like jobs, 
you know, mm-hmm. fewer kids were employed during the pandemic mm-hmm. because there was nowhere to go. There the were ice no cream jobs. Shops were closed. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's things as simple as that. So as we're looking to get out of this moment, we have a state budget about to get started, you know, in January, likewise here in New York City. And I really hope we take a lesson learned to say, okay, how can we invest in summer youth employment, in more mental health beds? Because people are scared about riding the subway and seeing that person who looks really unwell and they, chances are nothing will happen, but you Mm -hmm. don't know. And we've all seen those handful of high profile, awful, awful incidents where Mm -hmm. it makes us feel less safe. And so one other thing I want to point out is sometimes it's not actually crime that people are responding to and have a feeling about. It's a sense of disorder. And so bingo investing in the things that make us feel like the city is more orderly, which means the trash gets picked up, mm-hmm. means people with mental health and other needs have those addressed. So it's not coming out on the subway or on the street. All of that helps to make New Yorkers feel better about crime and safety. And that's another big part of the conversation. Bail reform's got nothing to do with it. Investing in all of those other protective factors does. Yeah. And feeling like, you know, someone's got us, someone's watching our back, Mm -hmm. someone's taking care of, you say, the trash or Mm -hmm. making sure the parades are well guarded or whatever it is that like, okay, we can go about our business without thinking too much about our safety. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You want it for people to be a non-issue. Right. Right. Exactly. Something that you're working on, or at least the Vera Institute of Justice is, is this whole idea of decarceration. Mm-hmm. And that, <laughs> to me, is a word. I can just see it on a Republican mailer uh-huh. right now. Decarceration, it sounds like a newfangled, made up, they just made up this word. These people who are telling us what to think, how to feel, now they want to let everyone out of jail. Unpack that a little for me. Well, so in this country, we currently have about 2 million people behind bars in jails and prisons. And that is the very simple definition of mass incarceration. We incarcerate more than any other country on this earth. And if mass incarceration actually made us safer, we'd be the safest nation on this planet. But we know we are not by a long shot. And so the idea of decarceration, which is simply having fewer people come through the criminal legal system as we know it, from arrest to prosecution to time behind bars, decreasing the use of those measures and actually investing in the things that both prevent crime before it happens or when people are already involved in the system to actually break the cycle of violence and crime. That's what we are about. So decarceration is a wonky policy word. I wouldn't use it at the cocktail party. Mm-hmm. But what would you, how would you phrase it? How would I phrase it at the cocktail party? Yeah. We can have both safety and justice, and in this country, we don't have enough of either. Mm -hmm. And working to end mass incarceration and the other things we do is Mm -hmm. fight for immigrants' rights and build safe, thriving communities. All of that is part of the project we all collectively care about, and all of us across the political spectrum, age, race, and every other demographic can agree we need both safety and justice. Mm -hmm. It's hard to disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Now, that's better for the cocktail party, Uh for sure. One thing I wanted to ask you, so two years ago, we had the murder of George Floyd. We had the protests. We had some that were very, most were very peaceful. Some were very violent. And we saw this real crisis of an idea of, oh, we have two minutes for trust in law enforcement. So I'm just going to end with this very big question. Trust in law enforcement. Is it getting better? And how can we improve it? Because we're all working together, Mm -hmm. whether you're a cop or you're opening a business or you're trying to get your kid to school, whatever it is, we're all 
in this world, trying to make it a better place however we can Mm -hmm. with the information that we have and our abilities. How can we build that trust with law enforcement and regular people here in New York City? Yeah. So in our survey research, one thing we found is people strongly support three things. One is to have the right response and the right set of tools in the toolbox for responding to things that right now go through 911 and that the police respond to. Across the board, people agree the police are asked to take on too much and do too much from getting cats out of trees to responding to the person with mental illness on the street to everything else. So send the right first responder. And when it's a mental health crisis, send an expert in mental health. When it's something that could be resolved with a social worker, send that person. And really sort of right-size the initial first response so that it's the right expert. The second is people want to know that serious crime is investigated and solved. And so we need to redeploy police resources, very little of which is actually spent on that right now compared to the entire police budget. But we need to redeploy to really focus on solving and investigating and responding to violent crime. Case clearance rates across the board in this country by police departments hover around 50% or lower. Mm. And that's especially true for violent crime. Mm. That really impacts people's sense of Mm. security and safety and confidence in law enforcement. And then the third piece is that people want to see that police are respected to do the job that they are tasked to do around violent crime but also that they're held accountable and responsible when they break the law or abuse their power. There is a lot of support, again, across the political spectrum to get rid of the so-called bad apples. Mm -hmm. And so I think that three-part framework is how we restore confidence, not just in police, frankly, but in how we deliver safety in New York, in our communities, across the country. And we have the balance wrong right now. And if we were to have an honest policy solution, a policy conversation around this as opposed to a political one, which is what defund and respect for police often devolves into. If we had a policy conversation, we'd be doing exactly that to spend our money, sending the right first responder, making sure the police have what they need to do to solve and respond to serious crime, and to make sure that there is accountability, as there should be for all of our elected officials, to do the job they're tasked to do with responsibility and accountability. One thing I might push back against, it's hard to know who the right person to send is. If someone is, there's a mental health disturbance, it could devolve very quickly into something violent that a social worker might not be able to handle. But there's so much that we could talk about more. There's so much to unpack here. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and bringing your perspective. And I think you explained everything beautifully. I think if we can find the common ground and not get so caught up in the histrionics, Mm -hmm. we can make progress and keeping communities safe and thriving, which is our God-given right. Right. Who's going to argue with that? Thank you so much for having me, Laura. What a fun conversation. Really fun and hope to have you back someday as things progress. I would love that. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to Cut to the Chase. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like it, give us five stars. What the heck? (laughs) 